in humility we acknowledge our inability to comprehend Scripture, to captivate our thoughts with the glories of Christ found in Your Word. We fumble about. So we ask that Your Spirit would rivet our focus on what You mean by what You have said, and having understood the text of Scripture, to seek to be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. Meet with Your people. We come needy, needing a word from heaven, that we might live a life of godliness, a life triumphant, a life in victory, as we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need Your divine enablement to live a life that brings You glory. Might we find that in Scripture this morning, in Christ's name, amen. I would like to preach to you this morning creation's story of God's glory. We find ourselves in Psalm 19 this morning and next Lord's Day morning. It is not without good reason that C.S. Lewis considered Psalm 19 to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the word in the world. Uh, as we were singing favorite hymns on Friday night, I, and this text on my, on my heart from studying it all, all week, I was thinking, why hasn't this been put to music? Why can't we sing Psalm 19 in our corporate gathering as we worship the Lord? Its impact on the New Testament is especially seen in Pauline theology, as he writes in the book of Romans chapter 1 and Romans 10. So, along with C.S. Lewis, I would, I would hold Psalm 19 up, not as some of the greatest poetry we ever read in Scripture, but as some of the greatest theology that uh, we can study together this morning. A God-centered preacher of our day, John Piper, said we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. There is greater healing for the soul in beholding the splendor than there is in beholding the self, unquote. Thank you for that reminder, Dr. Piper. Let me ask you, beloved. What is your chief pursuit in life? People respond to that question with many variegated answered answers. Money, love, marriage, sex, freedom, security, pleasure, peace, and the list goes on infinitum as to what their chief pursuit in life is. But we were created for God's glory and God's glory alone. This is God's chief pursuit, a magnification of His own glory and not our pleasure, but His pleasure. This psalm in Psalm 19 is all about the glory of God, creation as we, as we experience the change of season and we look at the color and the brilliance, all creation testifying to God's glory. When you talk about God's glory, you wonder, well, what, what, what kind of glory are we talking about? Are we talking about God's intrinsic glory? The sum total of all of His divine attributes, His holiness, His sovereignty, His righteousness, His grace, His truth, His goodness, His mercy, His justice, His omnipresence, 
His omniscience, His omnipotence, and much, much more are all wrapped up in His intrinsic glory. But as He displays His glory, as He displays His divine perfections, man is to respond with ascribed glory, credited to God which is worthy of His name, the glory due His name. We live to make His glory known. That is why He created us. And a marvelous testimony to God's grace is His revelation of Himself. His revelation in creation, His revelation in Scripture, who He is and what He expects of us. We could not know God apart from His gracious act of disclosing Himself, both in His world and in His Word. The first half of Psalm 19 discusses how He discloses His glory in the world, which we'll look at this morning, and next Lord's Day we'll look at His glory displayed in His Word, the Bible. I would propose to you and to myself this morning that every person needs to respond appropriately to this divine self-disclosure. Some of you, in your response this morning, needs to be that response of repentance and faith, turning to the Lord. Those of you that know Him would need to be responding in worship and service out of a God-enthralled vision of His majesty. So, would you notice with me, in Psalm 19, God's glory revealed in His world, We are told that this is for the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Would you notice, first of all, in the text here, the publication of the skies? We've only got two points to the sermon this morning. We find ourselves in verses 1 through 4b, the publication of the skies. In God's cosmic discourse, He focuses on His celestial glory, putting His glory on display to the end that we'd be moved to ascribe glory to Him. One of the textual markers that drives me to say how that we need to be moved to ascribe glory and driven to action Lest you think it is uh, theological surmising, I think the heading is very instructive for us. We are told that this psalm is for the choir director, so thus the need to write to contemporary uh, hymn writers, why have you guys not written us a hymn, put to music this theology, this rich theology that puts God's glory on display. This would be consistent with Thirtle's theory of psalm titles that we've, we've got this subscription uh, for the director of music 
I'd be the first one to submit to you that not all music is worship, but worship does tend to be put to music as the worshiper responds to God's revelation, ascribing greatness to Him. So notice with me, first of all, its indications in verse 1. This creation, God's nature, its indications. The writer of this psalm, David, says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. He starts off with this literary device of a chiasm, which is just a literary structure in Hebrew poetry that shows the focus, what the point of the text is driving at, and it's driving at the glory of God. The heavens are telling of His glory, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. David, the psalm writer, points to the heavens. Shemayim, literally the heights. You know, so when, you're, when your kid asks you, Dad or Mom, where's heaven? Well, that's a rich subject, a big topic you brought up. Let me go back, dear son, dear daughter, to the Hebrew. It's not specific, it just says the heights. God's no more specific than that. It refers to the sun, the stars, the planets, and everything in between. One of the moments this past week that I was driven to worship in thinking about God's creation, God's glory on display in His world, I was sitting uh, live streaming a conference that the Master's College and the Institute for Creation Research uh, put on together last Saturday. And I couldn't gather all of it, but one of the snippets I got was from one of the creation scientists. Uh, Again, consistent that creation is science and they are not contradictory, but comparable with each other. Dr. Jason Lyle, an astrophysicist, just gave a brilliant time, and I just had to pause the screen so I could spend a little time thanking the Lord as as you just contemplate the vastness of God's amazing universe. You're driven to worship. You know, David was enthralled by the heavens and the expanse that declares the work of his hands. Expanse. Maybe your translation, if I remember correctly from when I memorized this in the King James years ago, it's firmament. From the Hebrew term rakid, to stretch out. It contains the celestial bodies, it contains the air. How big a subject is that? The light, rain, dews, etc., which all displays the infinite power and wisdom of their Almighty Creator. As David is driven to worship as he contemplates and meditates on the vastness of the universe and thus the vastness of God, when the Psalter is concluded in Psalm 150, he breaks out in doxology. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. As you consider the expanse. You open up to the beginning of your Bible that we are studying, and the men's group is studying, and you are 
awestruck that people can't figure this out. Why, not, not only why are we here, which we asked you earlier in the introduction, but uh, how did we get here? Open up your Bible and read how we got here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You'll notice there in Genesis 1 verse 6, God speaks about this expanse, this firmament that He created then. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made this expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called that expanse heaven. And then there was evening. There was morning a second day. The heavens are shouting the glory of God. His firmament shows His cleverness, His handiness. That's His indications. Notice secondly, its incessancy. In Psalm 19, verse number 2, we are told about this creation that day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. It does something. Incessantly, day after day, night after night. And, and so the psalmist uses these temporal phrases to emphasize the ongoing testimony of God's glory. The ongoing testimony of the sky. It pours forth speech. Like the participles in the previous verse declaring proclaiming points to this constancy that it is perpetual. It is ongoing without interruption. It is not muted. It is not paused, but bears constant witness like a radio that cannot be shut off, which is tuned in perfectly, no static, no interruptions like the advertisements on Pandora Radio. We're sorry to interrupt. It doesn't happen. It pours out speech. The verb literally means to gush forth. In the case of the fool's speech, it describes how a a fool's mouth, you, you read through the book of Proverbs, a fool's mouth is belching forth foolishness. Job enlarges on this, uh, concept, especially in the skyscapes of chapters 37 and 38. There are a couple of large sections of Scripture that really put God's godness on display, Isaiah 40 through 48 and Job 38 through 42, in one of those creation moments where God schools Job on his greatness, this is used. It's akin to an erupting geyser. The old expositor that's gone home to be with the Lord preaches better than he ever did here on earth, even though he's a great preacher. James Montgomery Boyce said the image is literally of a gushing spring that copiously pours forth the sweet, refreshing waters of revelation. That revelation that I'd remind you we would not have of God unless He gave it to us. Psalm 
So it pour, He pours it forth through creation. But as I keep reiterating this revelation of God, this speech, this amazing cosmic discourse, notice in the next verse the irony. Okay, we're, we're told in verse 1, heavens are telling, the expanse is declaring, verse 2, gushing forth speech, verse 3, the irony, uh, by the way, there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Huh? This is wordless communication taking place. This is remarkable, it's a wonder beyond description Beyond our practice. What do I mean by that? You know exactly what I mean by that. You've had those telephone conversations where you're talking with somebody and it seems like you've been talking for a half hour going on at the mouth before you actually start to communicate. Oh, this is what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I've been saying for 30 minutes. Or the long page or the long text message, the four-part text message you send to somebody. This is divine communication taking place, divine revelation. You and I might spend many words trying to clearly articulate and communicate. You know, I just had this last week, uh, one of my students didn't like the way that the questions were worded and he got it wrong. Well, sorry, flawed human being. You might spend an hour in phone conversation or a long text to express something So don't let voice mislead you into thinking there's an audible sound. It is inaudible. It's like anything we experience, anything within earshot, the celestial voices are perceived visually, not audibly. Creation's voice cannot be heard. It can only be beheld. Here's what's so amazing about it. We are limited by the human language. God is not. No matter what language somebody speaks, he or she can understand natural revelation. It transcends culture. It transcends language barriers. God doesn't have to be like the missionary who has to go to school on the language to learn how to communicate with the foreign tribe. Maybe it would be best to translate uh, where, where, uh, translate verse 3 where their voice is not heard. As the New King James puts it, without their voice being heard, there is no place that their speech is not understood. Their wordless communication. In fact, the next uh, point uh, drives this home when uh, David gets to the intent. Note it, so just, just note this. Creation's witness points to God's glory points to God's glory incessantly. It points to God's glory incessantly with no words and immensely throughout the world. This fourth mini point here that we find in verse number four, notice the clarification. He says their line, their communication, has gone out through all the earth. Their utterances, without saying a word, in other words, their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun. We'll look at that in just a moment. So the, their line's gone out. Line of speech, line of verse, line of communication. This is uh, uh, the way Isaiah uses this terminology in, in Isaiah 28.10 is how teaching takes place. 
And for our teachers in the midst, which I know there are a few of you out there, you teach order on order. Isaiah says, line upon line, little here, little there. Your line's gone out. Unpacked its meaning. This verse, verse 4, is actually what Paul quotes out of the Greek translation, the, the Septuagint, in his argument in Romans 10. He, tie, he taps into David's theology here. David, who understood that God's revelation of himself reaches the entire earth, so that whether you be Gentile or Jew or any other person, you are clearly communicated who God is. This communication not only extends throughout the world, but is extensive in their sentences that are not real sentences because there are no words. In other words, general revelation, natural revelation conveys propositional truth. Every, there, as their line goes out throughout all the world, everyone comes to an understanding that God exists. God is eternal. God is all-powerful. God will judge those who reject Him. This is an unceasing, soundless sermon that God gives through His creation of His eternal power, His goodness, His genius, His kindness, His faithfulness. And there are no boundaries whatsoever that restrict these witnesses. They narrate the glory of God without stop. So, to reiterate this theology that David's just unpacked for us, we notice that it is unmistakable. It is unceasing. It is unspoken. It is universal. This communication, this publication of the skies in the first four verses of Psalm 19. We move from the publication of the skies to the prominence of the sun. You'll notice how what, what David does at the very end of verse 4, he tucks in an object lesson that he's going to unfold in the next two verses. When it, while he's talking about the, uh, the utterances, the voice, the line of creation, all of the expanse in the heavens telling of the glory of God, he says in them, in this expanse, he's placed a tent for the sun. And so what he introduces becomes the main subject. What tool does God use as a vehicle for communication? The regular rhythm of day and night. Notice the prominence of the sun. We recognize four features. First of all, in them, He's placed a tent for the sun. It's residence. It's residence. So at the end of this verse, we've got this illustration, just one object lesson. David could have chosen many. He says, look at the sun. As he rounds out the discussion of the first half of Psalm 19. Its residence there in the sky is like a tent. Second of all, it's resemblance, verse 5. Here's what it's like. It's as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Or for you athletes, he says, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. 
the object of cosmic discourse is like a bridegroom or an athlete. In this first picture, the picture of a bridegroom, the bridegroom bursts forth from the wedding chamber, the hoopah, to run his course across the sky, which we call sunrise, sunset. In this second metaphor, the, the athlete, you see this fiery orb that explodes onto the scene with virility and joy as it arcs from one end over to the other. Penetrate in all hidden things. The day is its victory lap, the night its Sabbath. So he said, take for instance the sun. Think of it as a bridegroom. Think of it as an athlete. It's exuberant. It's enthusiastic. And it's obedient to its Creator. What about you? Are you the random particle in His massive creation that thinks that you can answer back to your Creator or pursue your own interests or your own plans or your own glory? Paul picks up on this again in, in Romans, Romans 9. He, he asks a penetrating question, who are you to answer back to God? Many try to answer back to God. They try to suppress the revelation of God's truth and unrighteousness. They exchange truth about God. What is, he, what is Paul saying in Romans 1? For the lie. Serve the creature rather than the Creator. And as that sun bears testimony to its Creator as it goes from one end of the sky to the other, exposing everything in between, we ought to remember, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.13, that there is no creature hidden from His sight. Everything is naked and exposed. That seems to be some of the underpinning to David's argument here. Nothing escapes its witness. He says it bursts onto the scene, rises from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. We see its residence in the tent of the sky. We see its resemblance like a bridegroom, an athlete that bursts on the scene. How about its range? Rising, taking its circuit, all speaking of its activity. As one uh, commentator put it, he said, the, the psalmist paints an unforgettable scene of the horizon exploding in vigorous, radiant sunrise. How about his rays, number four? Maybe that's not the best term to use because David uses the term heat. He said nothing's hidden from its heat. He's referring here not to the glowing of the sun that every sighted person can see. Notice, light can be hidden from clouds. Light of the, of the sun can be hidden by the rotation of the earth. But it always supplies warmth to the planet. Even polar regions would be much, much colder without the sun's presence in the sky. Its proximity alone provides warmth. 
So that even the blind person is introduced to their Creator who cannot view His splendor. They cannot watch the color change of the leaves as I've been doing outside my window. There's a great story of Helen Keller, the deaf, mute, blind woman. She had no capacity to communicate until Ann Sullivan spent hours upon hours, days upon days, months upon months to unlock communication. And when Anne attempted to tell Helen Keller about her God, anybody hear about what her response was? She said, oh, I already knew about Him. I just didn't know His name. That's what the psalmist is shouting in our ears. God's testimony of Himself is all throughout His creation narrating His glory so that none can deny. It is a communication that is unmistakable. It is a communication that is unceasing. It is a communication that is unspoken, not using mere words. It is a communication that is universal. It is a communication that is undiminished. And it is a communication that is unresting. So as God created the world and put it into existence... His world book communicates for Him. It's continuous, constantly narrating and revealing or spewing forth information or knowledge of God's greatness and His glory. It's universal. It continues on. In your gospel conversations, utilize this ready-made witness God gives of Himself. Even though man will continue to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and exchange His truth for the lie with foolish statements saying there is no God, only the fool has said there is no God. If you know Christ as Savior this morning, how are, how are you ascribing glory to Him in your life? Are you pursuing a life of faith and obedience? Are you putting Him on display before a watching world in your neighborhood or at your place of employment by your heavenly affections displayed in your speech and in your values? Your Christian work ethic that sets the bar high? One that captures witnessing opportunities? What about in your covenanting together in membership in the local church and utilizing your spiritual giftedness for the benefit of the body? How about in your consecrated time when you seek His his revelation of Himself in Scripture and you search for Him there as He reveals Himself? How about in submission of your life of prayer? At what point are you willing to sell out for your sin or your fear of man rather than your fear of God? Is there a price tag set for when you will shut up for your proclamation of the truth? Do you meditate on all God has done to reveal Himself and use it as a springboard into thanking God for His goodness and greatness? Do you long for and desire Him more than anything else? General or natural revelation teaches us all about God. 
that He exists. It's non-salvific. It, it can't lead somebody to Christ. There must be the message preached. There must be special revelation, as, as David will continue on next week. The grand story that He's written down that we might not get it wrong. Are you devoted to His glory? A biography that I read fairly recently on one of our great religious leaders here in New England from years gone by was one who was captivated by the glory of God. It was this biography of Jonathan Edwards who early on, just in his teen years, penned his resolutions, his commitments. He was resolved. He vowed to be ruled by biblical priorities, by God's agenda and not His own. Every Christian leader has a passion, an overruling ambition that dominates his life, drives his soul, that which he most believes in. And for, for this man, it was the glory of God. Back in 1755, near the end of his life, he argued that this whole premise that David just presented to us in Psalm 19, that God made the world and He made the world for His own glory. He said, for it appears that all that is ever spoken of in the Scripture is an ultimate end of God's works. It include, and, and he keeps going back to that glory of God. That being the case, Edwards concluded that bringing glory to God if that was God's most important priority, it must also become His ultimate priority, His preeminent purpose. As He said, I felt within me a burning desire to be in everything a complete Christian. This was His resolution that set the tone for all the other resolutions that He would set thereafter. Here's His statement. Resolved in very first resolution that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory in my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever." And what followed after that resolution to have a life pursuing the glory of God above all, there were another several resolutions that he determined to follow that would bring God supreme glory in his life. So when somebody postulates that there is no God, might we be quick to take our Bibles or the creation all around us, when they say, is there no God, might we shout back as the first president of a Bible college in the Pennsylvania area said in his poem, is there no God? If not, whence came the trees and flowers, and whence the rains refreshing showers? And I, frail creature of the dust, from whence came I here on earth's crust? Evolved, you say? Ah, then tell this, from whence the power that made me out of nothing tower? Perpetual motion can't be found. This must from higher source abound. Is there no God? 
Then why through all the ages down is thought of higher being found? In which of tribes beneath the sun has his tremendous thought begun? A myth, you say? And what is myth? This too must come from higher source from whence it sprung. Can finite infinite conceive unless it from there received? Is there no God? Ah, look above, whence came the stars, the heavenly bodies near and far, explain the harmony of all. Can nothing this from nothing call? By chance, you say? Do ships upon the ocean float? By chance, these great gigantic boats? Must there not be some master mind to plan and make all this design? Is there no God? But please explain that man of men, the Christ whom God Jehovah sent, the one to whom all history points, he is its essential joint. Just teacher? How were by prophets long ago the detail of his life foretold? And would men die for just a claim if all he sought were earthly fame? There is no God? The fool hath said there is no God. And this he cries until the sod looms upon his ghastly face, and then he pleads to God for grace. There is a God, and all the power and might there be cannot take this belief from me. Both now and when I reach yon shore, I'll praise my God forevermore. Might that be our prayer. Would you pray with me? Our God, you alone are immortal invisible and all-wise as the hymn captures. We thank You for giving us a glimpse of Your great glory through the galaxies you, Your finger dripped into existence. We're forever grateful for Your voice, which though not heard audibly is crystal clear throughout the written Word of Scripture and the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that for all of eternity, we will praise You for all You've done for us and in us because it's from You. It is through You and it is to You that are all things. We would ask that it be to You alone the glory forever. Amen.